Well, let's turn together, if you would, to the uh, book of Romans. Romans chapter 8. A long time ago, well over a year ago, I told you a story about a traveling salesman. It's a story that really captures the heart of our passage for today and the heart of what is, in many ways, destroying our nation. I don't know if you remember him. He's out in the middle of nowhere. He gets a flat. It's dark. He hasn't seen a car for an hour. And then he discovers that he doesn't even have a jack. And after looking around, he sees a farmhouse in the distance with a light on. And so he starts walking toward it. And as he does, he's already angry. And so his mind starts to churn. You know how it is. And it starts to churn in angry ways. And he thinks, suppose no one comes to the door. Suppose they don't have a jack. Suppose the guy won't lend me a jack, even if he has one. Well, the harder his mind works, the more agitated he got. And when the door opened, of course, as you remember, he punched the guy out and said, keep your lousy jack. As I said, that story captures the heart of our passage for today and the heart of what's destroying our nation. And what is doing that? Well, fleshly reactions like that from sea to shining sea. Even in the name of good causes, they're destroying the good. And our founding fathers predicted it, and they warned us against it. And our passage for today tells us how to overcome it. John Adams wrote, Our form of government is not armed with the power capable of contending with human passions that are unbridled by morality and religion. We have that power, though we're not using it, I'm afraid, because too often we're focusing on political power more than on the kind of power that Paul talks about in Romans 8, as we're going to see, and you need both. Adams went on to say this, greed, ambition, revenge, keep your lousy jack, all of that would break the strongest cords of our constitution as a whale goes through a net. That's what's happening today. Greed, ambition, revenge would break the strongest cords of our constitution as a whale goes through a net. Our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. He said that our nation is founded on the value of virtue. Virtue from the Oval Office to the pew. Virtue, he said, John Adams, ennobles individual character and lifts society as a whole. And here's the bottom line solution to what ails our nation. Virtue encompasses characteristics in the leaders and in the people of goodwill, patience, tolerance, kindness, respect, humility, gratitude, courage, honor, integrity, industry, honesty, chastity, and fidelity. These precepts, he said, serve as cornerstones for both individual happiness and societal governance by the people. You can't legislate these. But as we'll see today, you can demonstrate them. I could quote many others. I've got the quotes here. I don't have time. I don't think. No, I don't. Benjamin Franklin said... The same thing, identically almost, same words. George Washington, James Madison, Thomas Jefferson, Samuel Adams. Let me just quote him finally. Neither the wisest constitution nor the wisest laws will secure the liberty and happiness of a people whose manners are universally corrupt. 
He, therefore, is the truest friend of liberty of his country who tries most to promote its virtue. And that's what the church is supposed to be all about. The government doesn't have that power. The church does. Self-government is at the heart of government by the people. Without it, we're lost. Without it, we'll, we'll destroy our nation for a lousy jack. As one man said, the problem, the problem with society is not the large-scale institution. It's the small-scale individual, starting with you and me. It's what G.K. Chesterton said. It was a letter he wrote to the editors at the, uh, at the Times of London. He wrote it in response to an article titled, What's Wrong with the World? The article waxed eloquent about corrupt politicians and the educational system, unfair taxes, kids these days. On and on the article went. What's wrong with the world? And on and on the responses went. What's wrong with the world? Here's what Chesterton said in his letter to the editor, and it ended the discussion. What's wrong with the world today? He responded simply, dear sirs, I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. That's what will save our nation. If we truly want to become great again, we will look to the average citizen, starting with ourselves. We will exercise some countercultural values, some heroic virtues, the qualities that once made our nation great, the qualities of true Christianity, which you can't legislate, but which we have the power to demonstrate. And which today too many Christians on the Christian right, are failing to do. So how do you deal with your anger when things go wrong? <laughs> or when people don't treat you right, or your selfishness, or your fear, or your lust, or your greed, or whatever your characteristic flesh pattern happens to be? Do you let these things take on a life of their, their own until they take you down and those around you? It's taken down our nation. A friend of mine used to struggle with anger and bitterness to the point that it was destroying his marriage. This is when we were pastoring up in Estes Park. He called it, um, he called it dirty thinking. And he found that dirty thinking always comes before dirty living. And it's what we're going to learn today because as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he, right? Proverbs 23, 7. We're going to see today that in so many ways, the solution to all of this turns on master control because our minds are hardwired to our lives. That's the way God made us. It's monkey think, monkey do. And so our minds had better be hardwired far more to the word than to the world, far more to the word than to the web, or we'll go crazy. We're going to see today that the mind is the master of the man or the woman. We've already seen that when the rubber meets the road, the difference that being a Christian makes is that we now have a miracle mindset, as I called it, available to us, one that can transform our lives. And we're going to see today how that works. We'll see that while we're not sanctified by our works, we are, you might say, sanctified by our thoughts. Or better, by the power of his spirit through our thoughts. Not by our doing, but by truth in thinking. Because it's through our minds that we plug into him who will then make a miracle of our lives. 
We've seen so far what made this miracle mindset possible, what happened on the inside of us when we were saved. In Romans 6, we learned that we've been divorced from the old man and united with Christ. The Spirit of Christ is now in us, and that we were unplugged from sin's power, though we can still plug back into him. In Romans 7, we learned that not only were we divorced from sin's power, we were delivered from sin's prosecutor, you might say. We saw that the purpose of God's law was to prosecute uh, our flesh, to bring us to our senses, to our knees, to prosecute uh, our relationship with the old man, to prove that there was no future in it. So we turned to be joined to another by faith in Christ. And now, when we plug into his power and bear his fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, the law can't touch us because it doesn't have anything to prosecute. But of course, the problem is that we've been divorced from someone who uh, who we've still got to live with. And, And whenever we jump back into bed with that old man, whenever we plug ourselves back into the flesh, the law comes against us like a prosecutor against an accused criminal, and we feel absolutely wretched. So Paul concludes uh, Romans 7 in verse 24. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? And in Romans 8, Paul answers that question. He tells us how to live by the law rather than against it or being crushed under it. It's the secret of being righteous rather than being wretched. It's the secret of plugging into the spirit rather than plugging into the uh, flesh as we do the daily walk of our lives now that we have the choice. Really, all this is the secret of self-government, which alone will make our nation great again. So there's a lot writing on this. Let's see how it works then, backing up. To Romans 7, again, 24. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God, he goes on to say, through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's seeing what the solution is in Romans 8. He's warming us up for the answer. But first he then goes back to restate the problem. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. He's saying, I love God's law now that I'm saved uh, in my heart, but in my flesh I still love another law. Moving on to Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The idea here is that in spite of how you feel in your wretchedness, you're no longer condemned. You're not condemned as a wretch. You're no longer under condemnation, which is bad, but just conviction, which is good, as we saw last week. Why? Verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. But how have I been set free, you might be thinking. I know I've been set free from the old man legally, but how does that work out practically? Next verse, verse 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Paul tells us first why there's no condemnation before he tells us how the law of the Spirit sets us free, practically. And that is very simply that Christ bore the condemnation for all that sin in the flesh. And he bore it, reading on, in order that, verse 4, and here it is, it's also that this can happen. In order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, 
but according to the Spirit. And how do you walk like that? What Paul's doing in these four verses is this. He's contrasting the two laws of God. The law of sin and the law of the Spirit. We've seen that God's law against sin is incredibly powerful to bring on conviction, but incredibly weak to do anything about it, to bring on sanctification. It could not do that, verse 3, weak as it is through our flesh. It only brings us down. But God's other law, verse 2, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has not only set us free from the law of sin and death, not only have we been set free legally from the power of the flesh by that divorce, but practically the law of the spirit has made it possible for the requirement of the law, verse 4, to be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Now, listen carefully. The overall idea here is that the government of our lives is on God's shoulders. And he governs our lives underneath it all through two kinds of laws. He blesses us with two laws, each having different powers. The law against sin, you might call his government by commandment, whereby he brings on conviction. And the law of the Spirit takes up where the law of sin leaves off. It's his government by empowerment, whereby he brings on, not conviction, but sanctification. The one has teeth, you might say, and boy does it bite. The other law, the law of the Spirit, has feet to get you going. The one consists solely of his precepts against our sin. The other has power over our sin. The one brings wretchedness. The other brings righteousness. The one is the bad news. It's a law that's hostile to all that's ungodly. It has endless requirements that we cannot meet on our own. The other is good news. It's the law of the gospel for all who are ungodly. And it has one requirement. All you got to do is turn by faith to him. All you got to do is call on him. All you got to do is look to him just like when you were saved. With your mind set on him and then you're empowered. John Wesley put it this way. Every command in the Bible is now covered by a promise. There is the closest connection between the law and the gospel. The law requires us to love God, to love our neighbor, to be meek, humble, and holy. All those virtues that John Adam talked about. We feel that we are not sufficient for these things. Yea, that with man, this is impossible. But we hear the good news of the gospel, the promise of God to give us that love and humility and meekness and holiness. And so we lay hold of this gospel. We turn to him. We look upon him. We set our minds on him. We call on him. And behold, it is done unto us according to our faith. Sometimes in a miraculous way, usually incrementally, step by step through life. So like Jeff said at the beginning, we know that we're different now than when we first believed. It's all because of this. And this is where the power of our government is infinitely greater than any human government. As John Adams wrote, it's the cornerstone both for individual happiness and societal governance by the people. 
Today we're looking at why we can do this and how we can do this. Why can we do this? We've been set free. We're no longer bound to the old man, but married to another. How can we do it? Next verse, verse 5. Here's how the government of your life can rest on his shoulders in practice. It doesn't have to do with your works. No, it has to do with your thoughts, what you're doing with your mind. Verse 6. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit on the things of the Spirit. Verse 6, for the mind set on the flesh is death. But the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Beware what you do with your mind. Verse 7, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. For those who are of the flesh cannot please God. In these verses, Paul's giving us a negative example. And the application is this. Don't get into, or he starts with a negative example. Don't get into fleshly thinking like so many do. For you are no longer in the flesh. You don't have to do that anymore. He's divorced from you. That is, who you really are is no longer in the flesh, bound to the flesh. You've been divorced from the flesh, so you don't have to set your mind on the flesh. Though many Christians do. You have a choice. They don't. So don't blame them. Because you are not in the flesh any longer, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, which he does because you're a Christian. Verse 9b, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. He belongs to the old man. He's not been saved. And then a word of encouragement, verse 10. And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Though the body is dead, the spirit is alive in you for the sake of righteousness. That is to do something about the wretchedness in you. And then the encouragement continues in verse 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. There is hope at the end of it all. Someday we'll be completely set free from like this this ball and chain of our sinful body, of the old man that still drags us down. We'll be set free from the very presence of sin by the same spirit who's in us today to set us free from the power of sin. That's what he's saying. The same one who raised Christ from the dead who will raise us into eternal life is now in us as our resource for living. That's power far exceeding any government power. And here it is, the application of this teaching. We tap into that resource. We plug into that power. We make live contact with the spirit of the living God by setting our minds on the things of the spirit and not on the things of the flesh. Because your mind is hardwired to your life. And so it all turns on master control. You've got to switch now. And you can now choose who to plug into. That old geezer in you or things in the world or in the web that stir up the geezer in you. Or the Savior who's in you. Who are you going to plug into? 
Paul concludes in verses 12 and 13. So then, brethren, we are under obligation no longer to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living, uh, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Put to death the deeds of the body. What does that mean? Well, combining this with verse 5, and here's the bottom line. You put to death the deeds of the flesh by putting to death the thoughts of the flesh. Which are the seeds of the deeds. And so boiling it all down, the secret of self-government, of sanctification, upon which societal governance by the people is founded, is to put to death the thoughts of the flesh and to set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Now, before we unpack what this means practically, let's look at it contextually. This is no stray idea. It's a doctrine that is central to our sanctification. And so you'll find it all through Scripture. Let's let the rest of Scripture put it in different words so the doctrine can really sink in. And then we'll look at how to practice it. It's as nearby as Romans 12. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed, famous verse, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your what? minds, because only then will you be able to then prove what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect in your life. Renewed minds make for revived lives. In Colossians 1.9, Paul prays that they'd be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, things of the Spirit, the Word and the Spirit up there. And why? Why to be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding? What does this kind of knowledge do? So that you may then walk in a manner worthy of him, bearing fruit in every good work. Where does it start? Right here. 2 Peter 1.3, seeing that his divine power has given everything pertaining to life and godliness. And how do you connect with that power? What's the secret of living a godly life? Seeing that his divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us. 2 Peter 2.20, he says that we escape the defilements of the world by the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4.13, until we all attain to, he says, the knowledge of the Son of God, and what's the, word, the, ne- the result, next word, to a mature man. John 8.34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone committing sin is a slave to sin. So how do you stop committing sin? How do we free ourselves from this slavery? John 8.32, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. The Spirit masters the man by enlightening the mind. The secret of spiritual acting is spiritual thinking. Those who walk according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. It's not the power of positive thinking, as Norman Vincent Peale used to advocate. It's not the power of possibility thinking, as Robert Schuller used to say. Because Paul's focus is not here, and this is very important, on the power of the mind. 
His point in Romans 8 is that through the mind, we tap into the power of the Spirit. Into God's power as instruments of righteousness. It's not, it, it's not a miracle mind that Paul's talking about here. He's talking about a miracle mindset. And so, as I said, we're not sanctified by our works, but we are sanctified by our thoughts, or better, by the power of his Spirit through our thoughts, not by our doing, but by truth in thinking. Because it's through our minds that we plug into him who can then make a miracle of our lives. So we've unpacked this teaching in Romans 8, the core of the doctrine in all of Scripture is right here. We've looked at it contextually. We've seen how it's reflected all through the Scripture. But what does it mean specifically? What does it mean to set your mind on the things of the Spirit? Exactly what are we to think about? We've already seen it implied in the passages that we've quoted. And it's all summed up by the fact that he's the Spirit of truth. And so... Of all the things of the Spirit might include, they at least include at their very heart, the truths of the Spirit. And of all the truths of the Spirit, that the truths of the Spirit might include, they at least include at the very heart, the truths of the Word of God. Christ made this clear in his high priestly prayer. In fact, he condensed the teaching here in Romans 8 into five words. The idea that our thought is the secret of our walk. It's John 17, 7, where he says, sanctify them in the truth. By their doing, no, sanctify them in the truth, because it's the truth that transforms us. And then he goes on to say, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. All of which is why our first value as a church is so critical and these days unusual of being biblically grounded. We stand on God's truth in dependence on his spirit, reading, studying, teaching, and then obeying the Bible as our foundation. In a nation of sinking sands, this kind of church is the place to be. And it's so important that uh, our mission as a congregation begins with this in a more focused way. It's foundational in the scripture, and it's, so it's the foundation of our mission. We seek to know and show the enduring truth and love of Jesus Christ by being a disciple-making family. The core of our discipleship is to that end. And so... It's the truth we're to set our minds on, the truth of Jesus Christ, independence on his spirit, his enduring truth, as we call it, and the enduring truth of his love right there at the top of our mission. Biblically, it's the wellspring of everything, as we've seen in all those passages. And I know of no other church that prioritizes this to the degree that we have in our mission and values. And these days, it's what's most needed. So, what does it look like in practice? Well, back to Romans 8. First, you put to death the deeds of the flesh by putting to death the thoughts of the flesh, which we are, as we saw, are the seeds of the deeds. 
It's like Paul says in Romans 13, 14. Take no thought. Don't, don't, don't touch it with a 10-foot pole. Take no thought of the flesh in regard to its lusts. Become a student of your thinking. Don't just be on autopilot. The point is this. When those fleshly thoughts surface, we're to put them to death as though they were deeds before they become deeds. Because that's where wicked words and deeds come from. The thoughts of the flesh. And we have that on good authority. In Matthew 15, 19, Christ says, Out of the heart come evil thoughts. And what do evil thoughts turn into? Really interesting what he says. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, then he turns it into acts. Evil thoughts. What come from the thoughts? Murders, adulteries, fornications, keep your lousy jack, thefts, evil deeds, and then he goes on to evil words, false witnesses, slanders that are crisscrossing our nation today. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. We've got to solve this from the inside out, not the outside in. You've got to treat every thought as though it's as good as done. If you let yourself think about it just one more time, because it goes from dirty thinking to dirty speaking to dirty living. And if that doesn't describe our nation from the top down and from the bottom up, I don't know what does. It goes from trashy thinking to trash talking to a nation full of trash. It's like the famous saying, sow a thought and reap an act. Sow an act, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. And in our nation, we've sown to the wind, and so we're reaping the whirlwind. Even in the church. So what are you, what are you setting your mind on? Let me tell you something, and this is nothing new, but it needs to be said. It's where we began, and this is where uh, it goes from preaching to meddling. There's just time for one application, and we'll continue this next time with other applications. It's the question I began with. Is your mind set on the word or the world? Is it set in particular on the word or the web? If you're not online much, the rest of this will just tell you why you don't need to feel guilty. In fact, you need to be proud. These days, no message on Romans 8 on the mindset of the Christian would be complete without addressing the Internet. More than any other medium in human history, the Internet breeds volatility and dishonesty and all manner of depravity even among the godly. It's where John Adams' words, in, in his words, human passions have become unbridled by morality and religion. It's where greed, ambition, and revenge break the strongest cords of our Constitution as a whale through a net, through the net, the Internet. It's where the cornerstones have been destroyed, what's necessary for both individual happiness and societal governance. 
More and more, it's a web of deceit, a web of half-truths and whole lies, one that will snare you in an echo chamber of fear and anger and paranoia. Of an echo chamber of your unique brand of fleshly thinking and feeling. It's calibrated to do that, to pull out your flesh. There's a science behind it without you even knowing it. It's where the one thing that has been most sacrificed is truth. And a close second is virtue. The characteristics of patience that Adams talked about and tolerance, kindness, respect, humility, virtues that are necessary to societal governance, qualities that you can't legislate but which we can demonstrate and we must demonstrate. And whether or not you do will depend on what you're setting your mind on, what echo chamber you're living in. So truth be told, where is it? If you're anything like me, you need motivation when it comes to spending less time online. So here are three books that will motivate you. I'd recommend once again, as I did a few weeks ago, one called The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. It's a Pulitzer Prize finalist. It's based on a growing body of academic research that's sounding the alarm about what the Internet is literally doing to our brains. Second, speaking of, uh, of truth or the lack thereof on the web, I'd highly recommend a book called Trust Me, I'm Lying, <laughs> subtitled Confessions of a Media Manipulator. It's one of the ones behind the scenes calibrating all this to bring this all out. He calls it the dark art of media exploitation. It'll show you how you're being manipulated. It's in its fifth edition, updated, it says, for the fake news era. And then finally, a book by Jason Lanier, a computer scientist who works at Microsoft Research and who knows what he's talking about. It's a book titled, Are You Ready? 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now. <laughs> Maybe I lost a few friends on this one. But I'm not on Facebook, so you can't unfriend me. So I don't have to worry about reading these arguments. 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now. And he brings in all sorts of evidence, uh, surveys, etc., to prove it. Argument one, you're losing your free will. Argument two, quitting social media is the most finely targeted way to resist the insanity of our times. Argument three, social media is, making, is turning you into a jerk. Have you been shocked by what you thought godly people, the things that they come out with? Maybe you've done that yourself. Argument four, social media is undermining truth. He's not a believer, but he sees it. Argument five, social media is making what you say meaningless. Argument six, social media is destroying your capacity for empathy. All sorts of research show that empathy goes down the more you look at this stuff. And what takes its place? Volatility. 
Argument seven, social media is making you unhappy. Keep comparing yourself to them. Everyone's putting their best face forward except for outbursts. Argument eight, social media doesn't want you to have economic dignity. It's calibrated to manipulate you to buy stuff. Argument nine, social media is making politics impossible. Politics as John Adams imagined it. And then argument 10, social media hates your soul. More than we know, we're playing with fire. Or maybe we do know, given the volatility that we've now seen in Washington and elsewhere. Where do you think all that came from? What was fanning the flames? What's going on in our country is calling for extreme measures. And so is this passage. Lest we be tossed here and there by waves, as Paul said, carried about by every wind of deception, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. All that is going on here. But by screens that are saying, trust me, I'm lying. That's what's behind it. To where all you can say is, what is truth anymore? Who knows? Overall, the idea here in Romans 8 is that you've got to be ruthless. The survival of our nation depends on it. You've got to put some things to death. The literal translation is crucify. Some things that may be life to you. When it comes to fleshly thoughts, you put them to death as though they were deeds before they become thoughts. You don't entertain them. You don't play with them. You don't harbor them. You don't let them in. Unlike a nation full of citizens who, like the salesmen, are stranded, sitting at their screens like zombies, listening to voices that are saying, in subtle and overt ways. Suppose no one comes to the door. Suppose they don't have a jack. Suppose they won't give you a jack, even if they had one. From volatility to pornography, it's garbage in, garbage out. That's the negative side. Putting to death the things that are seducing you. And God will lead each of us differently. I don't want to become legalistic about looking at the internet, but a word to the wise. Seven years ago, he led me to an old-fashioned flip phone, and I'm proud of it. <laughs> he'll, he'll likely lead you in other ways. I don't know. But these days, more than ever, you need boundaries. All of us have got to draw the line in the sand in some way. Yet having said that, there's a whole lot more on the positive side, on the side of setting our minds on the things of the Spirit, on the enduring truth and love of Jesus Christ, as our mission says, as we stand on God's truth and dependence on His Spirit, biblically grounded in a culture of sinking sand. This is so important, and it's so central to our doctrine and to our mission, and so critical to our nation, that we're going to spend the next three weeks on it, on the biblical priorities of setting our minds on the right things as the wellspring of everything, knowing and showing the enduring truth and love of Jesus Christ as 
our foundation. Julie and I will be away on vacation for the next two weeks. Thank, thank goodness you might be thinking. Uh, next week, Jim Murphy will focus on Ephesians 3 on knowing the truth of Christ's love. Right out of our mission. And then Jeff Jeffron will be focusing on this in a different way in two weeks. And then I'll be wrapping it up uh, three weeks from uh, today. Well, as the worship leaders come forward, I can think of no better way uh, of closing today than through the classic hymn, May the Mind of Christ My Savior. Let's all sing this as a prayer.